The reading this morning is in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 23, and can be found on page 1113 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this blabber trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we begin? Heavenly Father, we pray for your help now that we would lift our eyes to you and see you uh, more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are um, looking at this bit of uh, Acts. We've been working our way through Acts. We've come to this very, very famous, famous speech of Paul um, to, uh, in, in Athens uh, to the, uh, the gathered uh, uh, folk at the Areopagus. Um, and we're going to look at it over the next couple of weeks. We're going to divide it into two and take it in. It's really quite a, a moment. Um, if you think about where we've been, Paul is in general. He has gone into uh, where he's encountered places in Europe. He's gone to the synagogues, which he does here. He's engaged primarily Jewish people. And he has been engaging with them, um, uh, some others as well. But where, what happens, what Luke is showing us as we get uh, to this point, is this is really the moment where you might say, well, what happens when Christianity runs into a non-Christian world? What happens uh, as the gospel has been going into Europe? And here is a real sort of turning point uh, as Luke is describing things. What happens when Christianity runs into a really kind of thoroughgoing, non-Christian, secular, if you like, environment. What happens? What's that like? Um, and Luke, we're reading really about quite a fascinating, important moment in history as this happens. Um, as Luke knows that the gospel is going to kind of spread from there. But for us, even here now, looking back with hindsight, I wonder if you can see that actually what's going on here is going to transform the course of history. In, let me read the opening. Um, what happens when Paul uh, is there? Uh, he's waiting for, them, uh, for his companions in Athens. Uh, he's greatly distressed, sad, to see the city was full of idols. And so he, he does what he normally does, goes to the synagogue, uh, talks with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace, um, where he um, discusses with a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The marketplace, the, the place of business, the place of discussion, the place of politics, the public square, if you like, um, of the, uh, um, uh, the day. Uh, some of them asked him, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, uh, they are laughing at him. 
the phrase babla is, uh, it's actually, the idea is a, a seed-picking bird. You can imagine one just coming along, picking little seeds out. Um, and what they're really saying is, he's a babbler, he's a seed picker. Paul, you don't really know what you're on about. You just have collected a few clever ideas here and there, and you're trying to string them together. Uh, they're, sort of ge- they're gently mocking him. Um, uh, you don't quite know what you're on about. Uh, and can you see that at this moment, here is Christianity meeting a non-Christian world, and they are laughing at him. But from where we stand, in 250 years, the entirety of the Western world will be uh, Christianized, if you like. This idea that Paul is bringing them, they may laugh at it now, it is going to revolutionize and turn the world upside down. A couple of recent books that have uh, come out and discussed this kind of it, historians have looked at this. Um, uh, one there by um, historian Tom Holland, you might have come across uh, his book, Dominion, which talks about the, the revolution that happens, that Christianity brought to the world, really turned uh, and, and, and kind of influenced the world over particularly in the West um, and, uh, and, and in Europe. Um, and then on the uh, other side there is a very recent book. This is just out. It's by a Christian writer, Glenn Scrivener. Um, it's called The Air We Breathe. It's kind of taking that Tom Holland idea and looking at it from a Christian perspective and saying, look, um, in fact, I've got a, 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 a brief quotation. He says, um, the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. It's seen in the fact that you don't notice it. It is so infused, uh, the way of thinking, uh, the values, the legal systems, all sorts of things have been influenced by Christianity. You don't even notice it, uh, but it is there. Um, So we're at this point where the gospel is going out, and it is laughed at, but it will change the world. So it's really helpful to see how does Paul handle what's going on here? How does he handle things um, at this moment? And really what he does at the start is... Uh, Pete was saying, he goes around the city, he sees the places of worship, he sees the idols and the things that are uh, are there, and he's distressed, he's sad, but he doesn't panic. He doesn't panic. Um, uh, uh, Let me use this illustration. Um, If you're a teacher here, um, and uh, imagine you're a teacher, now I know some of you are, you're a teacher, and you know that you're about to inherit a really chaotic class. Um, uh, you kind of, you've heard about them, you know that you're coming the way. And I imagine that as teachers, you know what you're doing, you're experienced. You might know that. They're coming to you, it's chaotic, you know what it's going to be like. But you kind of calmly, you know, you can look ahead and think, well, I know where they are going to be eventually. We will get there. They may be this way now. That's where we will end up. And it, Paul almost has that mindset. They are laughing at him. But he comes to it and says, I know where we're going to be down the line. I know the transforming power of the gospel. It's not going to leave this situation in a kind of chaos. So that's how he kind of goes about this. So whilst being distressed, he doesn't panic, he sets about his work. And what he does is he doesn't come in. It's really interesting. He doesn't come in and say, okay, here's my God. I'm coming to tell you about him, uh, and you should all just believe in him. He doesn't do that. Actually, he comes in and says, do you know, I already think, I think you already sense and in some way know of or about the living God I'm here to tell you about. I think in some way, you already sense, you already know something of the living God that I'm here to tell you about. So we'll see how he does it. A couple of ways, uh, um, uh, a couple of things to bring out just from this, uh, uh, this first part as he engages with them. The first is that he comes in with this mindset that everybody worships. Everybody worships. 
So, having been called a babbler, um, um, but they do want to know about him, uh, uh, they say, um, picking up verse 18, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they bring him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, whether that is exactly on the location of the Areopagus, if you visit there, or whether it's a meeting of those who would have normally gathered to discuss, we don't quite know, but he, they bring him to a meeting of the Areopagus and say, can we know a bit more about this teaching you're presenting? You're bringing strange ideas, and we'd like to know what they mean. And so verse 22, Paul stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus and says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I've walked around your city. I've seen the temples. I've seen the statues. I've seen what you do. I've seen your habits. I've seen the the way that you structure life. I've seen those things, and I see you are really very religious. Everybody worships. He's, um, uh, He's particularly got two, Luke draws out these two groups that are there, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, a very quick shorthand, if you're kind of thinking, well, who are they? I don't, I don't know who they are. Um, the Stoics, they're a group who effectively said, the, the world is as, is as it is, uh, and you just need to align yourself to kind of face it and deal with it. The world is harsh, it's often cruel, it's tough, but if you can align yourself to kind of live with that, then you'll be able to face it. So there's a kind of way of, of, of making sense of that. The Epicureans were a different group. They said, well, life is as it is, and it's often harsh and cruel, so just make the best of it today. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. So enjoy it now. Seize the day. And they're two groups, but they're both trying to deal with how do you live now in the light of how the world is? How do you face death? How do you cope? And he says, look, I can see, I can see you I see how you work. I see your mindset. I see what you're doing. Everybody worships. Everyone is trying to figure out how to live and relate to the the forces, the gods they think are out there. Everyone does it. So he doesn't come in and and sort of uh, um, of shout them down. He says, actually, look look at yourselves. Look at the signs there are that you are worshiping creatures. We all are. We're, we're wired. We're made because we're, because we're made by God. We're made by God. We're wired by him for worship. It's like a, a tap that is there for all of us. And you can't turn it off. We, we, it flows. We, we need to worship something. And yet he says, but if you look at yourselves, you'll see the different, that tap is just, it's pointed in different directions. You're trying to worship different things, ideas, different gods, trying ways of coping with the world as you see it. Not the living God that there is. Uh, there was a writer, um, uh, I came across this a, a number of years ago, David Foster Wallace. He's an American writer, not a Christian guy. He was giving a speech uh, to um, uh, some graduates uh, in a sort of university setting, I think. And he talked about this. I think it was fascinating because here is somebody who isn't a Christian, but he, he, he writes this. There's a little bit of the quote will come up. Uh, he says, Here's something that is weird but true. In the day to day trenches of adult life, There is actually no such thing as atheism. Uh, There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason, he says, for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... Uh, If they're where you really tap into meaning in life, then you will never have enough 
will never feel you have enough. Uh, he says, if you worship your own body uh, and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly, and as time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Very happy, isn't it? Uh, he says, on one level, we know this already, but the trick is keeping the truth in front of us in our daily lives. It's really interesting. Here's a uh, guy who's not a Christian. He's saying, look, we all worship. We almost can't help it. We're looking for something to relate to, to, to give us the meaning and significance that we want. Now, he cites money and beauty as a couple of things that we might worship, we might uh, look to. Um, uh, in the Epicureans and Stoics, they had other things that they were focused on to try and make sense of life. There are, re- the reality is just about anything can be something that we worship, ultimately. Good things given by God are often the things that we then turn, we make the focus of our worship. It might be children, for those of you who are here who have children, and how they are doing in life, they can become a focus of our worship. Holidays, and whether we have them or or don't have them, or whether they have enough. Work, whether we feel that we're advancing sufficiently, that we've got a good sense of our lives and we're making progress. Politics particularly in our day and age at the moment. We might reach for politics as the way. Uh, Health, education, these are things that we can channel our worship to. And how how is it we know that, I was thinking about this in my own life, how how do we know what it is we're directing our worship at? Most often, I think, it's the things that we are looking to for comfort or control. It's really the Stoics and the Epicureans. One of them's looking for comfort, one's looking for control. The Epicureans, they're, they're saying, look, live for pleasure. Live, just find your comfort. You need to find it now. Uh, the Stoics, no, we just need, you need to control life as much as you can, even if that means kind of facing it uh, with a sort of, you know, uh, a really uh, sort of uh, severe stare. Comfort and control. You can see actually in, in the kind of things, your work, actually, you know, the, the reason we end up working too much is we're trying to say, look, can I, can I make sure I've got this control over my life, that I'm the one, I'm the, in the position where I know that nobody can touch me, uh, I've made it or I've got enough, uh, our, our sense of um, our wealth, our money, our houses, whatever it might be, I've got control over that, uh, or comforts, that I know that I have the good things that I need, I know that I'm secure, it might be my children, it might be my holidays, whatever it is. So here he is, he's saying, and actually just, if you're younger here, just, we're, we're you know, a, a great mix of ages, which is great. If you're younger here, if you're a platformer, um, if you're a, a teenager, if you're, or a student, maybe, or to be honest, anywhere basically below about 30, um, I often think the, the generation coming through, it, you can see the things that the older generation has worshipped. You often have a better eye on the things that the older generation has worshipped because you're living with the re- results of them, basically. So you may see what it is we have worshipped, where we have channeled our, our worship and our energy. Um, so it's something you can ponder. You may actually see, and it's often the gen- you know, even if you're an older generation, you can see it for the generation that's come before, what have they focused on? Everybody worships, says Paul. That's how he kind of goes about this. But then, everybody knows God to some degree. So he doesn't come in saying, I'm going to prove who my God is to you. He comes in saying, I, I think you, you already sense something of who my God is. You already sense something of who the living God is. 
Uh, He goes on to say, I see you're very religious, and I walked around, and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So he's gone, and he says, like, there's this, this God, and that God, and this one. And then, of all the things, there's this place, statue, temple, and it says, to an unknown God. Now, you can imagine, maybe with the pantheon of gods that there were, all the different ones they wanted to cover, uh, he's kind of going, like, I can see what you're doing. You're worried that you've missed one out. There might be a God up there that you haven't appeased, um, and just in case, we'll just kind of come up with a, a sort of universal, um, in case you're up there and feeling left out, this one's for you. But he says, actually, in, in what you're doing there, he goes on, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. He's saying, look, you are worshipping people, and that's such a profound part of who you are, but you don't quite know why and who it is you are worshipping. There is a gap, almost. There is a gap that you sense that there must be something out there to relate to, someone out there, and you don't quite know who that is, and yet it is there. And your altar to an unknown God testifies to it. Um, I, I'm going to try and illustrate this um, uh, using, um, uh, using this. Now, if... Uh, if you've fallen asleep by this point, you'll probably wake up because, you know, it's one of these things. I'm going to use here a, uh, a sort of smallish vessel of water, okay? This is what I think is going on with what Paul is trying to say. He says, look, there's, there's this unknown God you have. There's this worshipping instinct, and you're not even sure who it is. Um, imagine this is, this, is, uh, this is what we're like. We're worshipping creatures. We're like this. Um, and I don't know if you've ever done this, when you're in a swimming pool or uh, at the beach and you have some fun, you've got, a, you've got a ball. Now, I've got a very small one here. You might have a, 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 you know, a, an inflatable ball. And you have great fun because you push the ball down under the water. Yeah? And you know what happens when you do that? Eventually, you know, when you're having fun, it's going to... Okay, so we're going to... So you're there and you, you, you hold this down underneath the water. It's great fun. And, of course, eventually, at some point, you let go and it'll come back up. And it's as if Paul is saying, your your worship to this unknown God, this is what this is like, that we have in us this desire to relate to God. And we we spend a lot, and you may encounter people, you may be somebody yourself, and and we push ourselves, we push that sense of who God is down, and we try and live without kind of acknowledging it, but we cannot help at times that it just splashes up to the surface. We can't help it. It's almost like the unknown God is there all the time. We may live and we may think we have control over our own lives, and yet somewhere at some point, that sense of the unknown God splashes up, and we can't get away from it. My hand is very wet. Hold on. Ah. There we go. And when it comes back, when it comes up to the surface, what is going on there? He says, Paul will go on to say, and this he'll, he'll unpack this a bit further in, his, uh, in the rest of what he has to say to them. He said, there are hints and there are clues. If you look at your own lives, if you look at the culture we have around us, if you look at society, we'll see there are hints and clues. There are, uh, he used a couple of examples, there are stories. So he'll talk a little bit later. He'll say, even some of your own poets, your own writers, your own storytellers tell you that there are ways in which we are trying to reach out for God. There are, there are ways in which we know something is there, and we can't quite help it. It's why I spend lots of time uh, sharing stories and movies with you, because it, it's, it's true today. In the stories that we tell, in the books, the plays, the, the, the movies you watch, 
so often there's the, the longings of our heart, the longings to know the living God are there, and they come up in those stories, and it's when we see them, we actually think, yes, that's, that's what life is about. That's what I'm trying to, to find, and it's splashing up to the surface. Or equally, the problems that we face. The Epicureans, the Stoics, looked at the world, and they saw the problems that we had, and they thought, we have to try and deal with these in some ways. And the problems that you and I face, every religion, every philosophy, every political philosophy is trying to fix problems that we know we have. And when those problems emerge, so often they are actually the ball splashing up to the surface. They are like the altar to the unknown God. They are saying, you know that there are things wrong in the world. There are things that we are trying to fix, and what we are longing for in that is the living God who can fix them. I don't know what they, you know, you'll have read the news this week, whatever the things are that ache your heart or over the past couple of years, the situations in the world that, that ache your heart, that ache, that longing for things to be right, so often it is the altar to an unknown God. It is the splashing up on the surface of the need we have to relate to the God who is the only one who can fix Renew, restore our world. So Paul is talking to them about the ignorance that they face. You're ignorant of the very thing you worship. You are worshipping creatures. You know this, and yet you don't know who it is you are looking for. So what do we need as we finish this up? We are ignorant on our own. Paul starts from there, and, and, and yet he doesn't beat them over the heads with their ignorance. He says, look, can you see the signs in your own ignorance, in your own uh, desire to know Uh, how to relate to God. And God is so marvelous. The God of the Bible is so uh, extraordinary. He preaches Jesus and the resurrection to them because God doesn't say, well, look, you lot are ignorant on earth. You lot are really just a piece of work, and I'm done with you. In your ignorance, in your turning your back on me, I'm done with you. He doesn't say that. Jesus and the resurrection says, actually, I'm a God who comes down to earth. In your ignorance, yet I came to you. You were ignorant of me. You didn't recognize me, yet I came and I walked among you. You're, you were ignorant and you didn't recognize me, yet I, I, I healed you. I taught you. I came to be among you as in the person of Jesus. And in your ignorance, you nailed me to a cross and you left me to die. And yet, despite all that, that was the way that I was going to make it possible for you to know the living God, our Heavenly Father, through me, says Jesus. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. And you'll see the table is set. We're going, to, we're going to share in bread and wine shortly. Jesus who came down bodily in flesh and blood. In our ignorance, we didn't know what we were looking for. And he said, I will come and be amongst you in person, in living flesh and blood, that you might know who I am.